I just trusted Demi to have written something useful and he, and he abused my trust. All right. Welcome to the Anime Research Group. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And this week, in our quest to watch all the shows we never had time for, we look at Demi Dler, Prince vs. Penguin Emperor, a show that exists. It certainly does. So before we get into our sort of discussion, the content warnings for this week are adolescent humor, I think that's being charitable, mm -hmm. and sexual harassment, everyone's favorite thing in anime. <sighs> but yeah, let's talk about something uh, more fun. Danny, what have you been reading or watching or getting up to in the world of anime? Well, I've not really been watching anything within the medium of anime, though I am looking forward to watching Gundam Age um, next in the upcoming week. The show done by Level 5 and Sunrise, because it's the next one on my list of going through all Gundams. This week I've not really been doing much, mostly resting, uh, but I have been, I did play a whole bunch of random games on the PS Now subscription service, including several awful third-person PS3 shooters, and some surprisingly interesting games that I did not expect to be as good. I've also been watching art restoration, videos on art restoration, where some guy just takes 40 minutes to slowly restore a picture to do as, as best he can. And it's it's weirdly fascinating. Yeah, that Baumgarten restoration channel mm -hmm. is very mm -hmm. soothing to watch. And you need all the soothing you can get after your uh, PhD stuff, which is why <laughs> we are doing episodes later than usual. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that one channel of the old Japanese man doing watercolors, which is also very soothing. How about you, Ian? So I've been kind of on a Naoki Urasawa kick. I read a bunch of Master Keaton, which was not quite as good. I'm putting that down to it not being written by Urasawa, but written by someone else with mm -hmm. uh, art by him. Uh, I read through all of Billy Bat, which was mostly good. I mean, it was it was weird to be watching stuff about conspiracies in 2020. <laughs> I like that uh, he didn't, the, of all the stupid predictions that come true, like the fact that the Olympics didn't. <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the plus side, uh, the world is apparently going to be a, a mess in like 10 years, which I fully believe. Uh, <laughs> it's already a mess. Yeah, it already is. Uh, no, but like an actual like Pope's apocalypse. <laughs> I would say that he hits most of the same things that we get from 20th century boys in this. And I would say there's a lot less filler in this. I'm not sure if this is how it was structured, because when you read like the scans of it, it's all like, oh, and for the next eight weeks, we'll be running this weekly, which I think meant it came in batches rather than being uh, on a consistent timeline. A lot of like the weirdness that can happen in anime comes from the fact that it's, uh, the manga comes from that it's serialized. And some weeks you have worse ideas than others. Um, the ending is terrible. The bad... Yeah. Bad or bad. It's, it's it's not that it's outright terrible. Like there's some neat ideas behind it. It's just that it's really confusing and feels that the prior 165 chapters talking about this big secret about what the bat actually is and what it can do, and then it just doesn't end on anything sat on a satisfying conclusion, but just leaves off. The thing is, I feel like I know what the satisfying conclusion is. I'm not really going to say it. Uh, I don't usually care about spoilers, as you know, but. I feel like it would require too much explanation. Yes. I'm hoping that there that like there'll be a 21st century boys equivalent where we um get like the true ending so to speak, like where it actually finishes off, but yeah. Also, I've been watching Aria just the first season uh periodically to soothe my soul. Oh, one question now that you've read uh, read a bunch of Urasawa though. 
One thing I thought to myself when I was rereading some of his one-shots and uh, Asadora, his current manga recently, is his character designs, while they're very solid and like consistent, I thought to myself, man, these really do seem like stereotypes in, in, um, in a certain way. Because he uses the 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 character the Japanese characters with two large front teeth a lot, and I know that's like a cultural thing, but I'd be a lot less annoyed by that if he wasn't the one doing it. <laughs> um, like, yes, he does that. He does that with the like the in universe comic for Billy Bat. Uh, I forget its name. Something Ponkun, mm-hmm. um, Fuji Ponkun, I think. I think it's what I see a lot is that he reuses a lot of the same characters from uh, manga to manga in in very similar roles. Uh, Like his manga artists all look kind of similar and they're all there like uh, saving the world somehow. (laughs) He's got one or two female character designs. He's got the mother design with the black hair and the ponytail. Koizumi Kyoko, younger girl with the ponytail. He's got the blonde woman with like the welling hair. Yeah. It's actually kind of fun, actually. Like, I like sort of seeing them people like authors like Akuku Higashimura or something take their characters and put them in new contexts and seeing how that like affects me in like an intertextual manner. But mm. yeah, he could do with some more. <laughs> uh, how about you, Fred? I haven't done anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's honesty for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry's back after 11, nine years or something. Yeah, Seven. I don't know. Uh, did you come back to get rid of Shinzo Abe? We don't know, but maybe. <sighs> I mean, oh, the, the, the the joke theory I heard is that he's actually the author of Haruhi. <laughs> uh, and he's taking the time off to start work on his light novel series again. But yeah. that is definitely not true. And on that happy note, Denny, why don't you tell us all about Daimidalur? This show ran from April 5th, 2014 until June 21st, 2014 for a total of 12 episodes, and it had an additional six OVAs after that. It is based on an original manga by Asaki Nakama, which ran for four volumes from 2008 until 2012. He's not really done anything else worth of note besides the direct Time Dollar sequel, which ran for two volumes from 2013 until 2016. The anime was made by TNK, whose entire repertoire is basically just edgy shows, such as the much more popular High School DxD or um, something that Ian's actually watched, Kandakawa Jet Girls. I only watched two episodes. I only watched two episodes. <laughs> However, they also made two other shows Ian's watched. They made School Days and Cosplay Complex. Hey, hey, we've, we've all seen a bit of Cosplay com- Complex. <laughs> Yes, we have. Skull Days was just disappointing rather than. Mm. I mean, it was bad, but it was bad in that it was like a solid premise that could have been done well, but wasn't. They're probably best compared as a studio to their recently bankrupt cousin Arms, which was uh, responsible for all the Queen's Blade and Ikitosen stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was all I've got on the show. I could really not find anything else worth talking about besides the fact that it was mostly panned when uh, when it came out critically. It has a rating of 6.1 on Mal. That's how you know that it's not popular. Because you need to have at least a rating of 8 to be an average show. That That is how Mal works. Unless your name is Lane and you're rated 7.9 something. <laughs> Transition me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. This is a transition for Ian. <laughs> Fuck you, Danny. <laughs> okay. I have the power. So we're going to talk about what actually happened in the three episodes we watched. So episode one. So before the anime starts proper, we get a brief in-media res prologue. There's a female mech pilot fighting an obscured enemy mech. Uh, her mech is suffering from like mechanical fault, and she gets defeated. There's a quick bit of exposition that establishes the threat that's attacking the world, namely the Penguin Empire. And we kind of get the idea that the Earth isn't defending itself so good. Uh, after the opening, it becomes a fairly standard mech first episode. It establishes a protagonist being brought into the conflict and their reasons for fighting. Uh, Koichi Madanbashi has run away from school He's after being chewed up by a games teacher. And he is followed by Kyoko Sanan, who has been sent to evaluate him as a possible factor candidate. Uh, for the organization whose name I'm currently forgetting. Their first conversation gets interrupted by some Penguin Empire goons whom they try to escape from, but they're forced to confront them in a construction site, and Koichi gets... Who would have guessed? Mechtrop 1 ticked off. Uh, this awakens an inner power inside Koichi, who is able to successfully defeat the goons then. Kyoko has a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with him, trying to convince him to fight, but he refuses the call to action. The enemy waits for him at his house, and so he has to run away. He runs into Kyoko, who drives him to a town park where the Daimler robot waits for them. Kyoko gives him another impassioned speech, and this time he enters the robot and fights the enemy's Type 8 robot. Uh, and eventually uses his inner power to unleash a finishing move and win. And all of this would be fine, except for the one big thing I've left out. Every single plot point I have mentioned is centered around sexual harassment or ecchi content. Koichi gropes the guidance teacher. He sneaks upskirt glances of girls going to school. The enemy goons have bulging cod pieces, and his inner power is that of arousal, aka high arrow particles. And he charges up by fondling Kyoko's breasts. Yay! Yay. Makes, what makes this show just another entry in the weirdly long line of shows where arousal equals superpowers? What other shows do this? Because the thing that was coming to my mind was Orini Twin Tales, but that's him turning into a girl to fight as a mech. Well, this season alone, we have HX Hero, which is just about teens using horniness to fight supervillains, or Super HX Heroes, I think it's called. There's Seikon no Quasar, which they don't directly derive their power from horniness, but they do derive it from, from the act of breastfeeding. Yeah, yeah, I remember it now. Which starts from a similar non-consensual state as this, as the breast fondling here does. But uh, yeah, it's a weirdly, it's a much more common concept than you'd think. So yeah, that was episode fondle, Daimidler goes into action. On to danger, the, soul, the stolen son. Mm-hmm. So episode, uh, episode two introduces us to some more members of the organization, which is called Beauty Salon Prince. And it impresses upon Koichi the need that he to increase his uh, abilities. But unfortunately, I'm going to actually describe the episode. A new large penguin robot, the Antarctic Type 9, is terrorizing the city. And Koichi is fighting it in the Dimedler, which has been newly upgraded with a seat for Kyoko. The Type 9 splits in two. And the Daimler struggles to fight against the two halves, and they end up clamping down on it like an Iron Maiden. That's actually pretty cool. So Koichi tries to race his high arrow particles by groping Kyoto, but he just can't get it up. The Daimler is able to escape when a helicopter comes to distract the Type 9 and its pilots by releasing a ridiculous amount of pornography. 
there's a post-fight briefing, uh, debriefing, where everyone's trying to figure out why he went limp, so to speak. And he gets a dressing down from administrator Masayoshi. This person was observing the battle dressed like your stereotypical Ronin from a samurai show. He's more like a wandering monk, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's probably a better description. Ko- Koichi and Matayoshi bat- butt heads, but eventually Koichi comes around and realizes that his lack of ability, uh, when Matayoshi uh, one-ups him, I guess, by uh, arousing Kyoko merely by brushing her nipple. Presented as this super awesome power technique where with a flick of his finger, he can bring her to his... To, to her knees. Still half an episode to describe. <laughs> yep. Uh, the Penguin Emperor hack into the Beauty Salon Princess computer system, and the Penguin Emperor does the whole villain posturing Star Trek uh, thing where they reveal their evil plan. The evil plan is to block out the sun, aka Operation Shadow Hell, which will somehow cause humans to procreate more and release high arrow <laughs> particles. This fails for the obvious reason. Yeah, and then we get a rematch between the Type 9 and Koichi, but he, again, cannot generate enough particles. He gets into an argument with Kyoko, saying he's bored of her breasts, but he rips open her top, and this provides the stimulation he needs to create first the finger barrier, and then the finger punch finishing move. This impresses Matayoshi, and Koichi becomes his disciple. Bad. Just bad. Episode (laughs) 3! Episode 3. Menace, Fiery Jake appears. This episode is very it has almost nothing to do with Fiery Jake and is about Rakan Seabury, uh, hereafter Ritsu, or Ritz, who is like the villainous rival. It starts off with the Penguin Emperor giving his nice evil monologue. And oh, I'd Ritz- just like to intercede that when Ian talks about the Penguin Emperor and stuff, we literally just mean guys in costume, uh, in penguin costumes who have giant front tails that are the that are the previously mentioned erections. Yeah, so Ritz crashes into the lair. She fangirls out with the penguins. She fondles them again unconsensually. She goes, yeah. And it turns out that she is there to become the newest recruit in the penguin army. I mean, it's good to have a dream, I suppose. The emperor agrees to let her join if she beats Jake, the penguin commando. Unfortunately, Jake is sick, so all the other commandos gang up on her instead, although she beats the entire army pretty easily. Uh, unfortunately, she also hits the Penguin Emperor and gets sent away. For less majesty, or whatever it's called. Uh, as she cries, one of the commandos tells her how she can win the approval of the Emperor, namely by polishing all their front tails while dressed in a school swimsuit. Over in Beauty Salon Prince, Koichi is not acting much better. He is peeping on the female scientists as they do yoga and getting overconfident about a winning streak he has. Pride goes before the fall. So... Ritz has gained a sort of leadership position because she's leading the Penguin Commandos in causing havoc in what is called Operation Penguin Vulgarity. They are going to make people uncomfortable by saying a bunch of plumbing-related innuendos over a loudspeaker. Koichi confronts her and the Type 8 robot she's riding in, but he gets his ass kicked pretty easily, and the Dimeedler's right arm is broken off. The fight technically ends in a draw because Ritz gets motion sickness from performing a special move and uh, retreats herself. But Matayoshi explains how it's all Koichi's fault that he lost because he's been relying too heavily on Kyoko to supercharge his high arrow particles, and so he has to enter a special training program. Fortunately, he has 10 days to complete his training as the Penguin Empire doesn't do anything. Uh, And the next incompetent evil plan is to cover the city in women's underpants 
I guess also to raise the high arrow particles. Koichi is able to control his Dimeedler at a higher level now, and he isn't relying on high arrow particles. Uh, but he is somewhat distant with Kyoko, and she takes this and the fact that he has improved to mean that she will no longer be required to um, ride in the Dimeedler with him. And she's a bit down on this. Actually, he's just able to generate higher particles without direct stimulation. There's some drama about this, uh, but as as it gets cleared up and Kyoko realizes that Koichi still needs her breasts, he ogles at her, and this gives him the power to resist the special move Ritsu did earlier, and then to finish off with a finger beam. Suddenly, I remember watching these three episodes, and now I'm sad. I have to watch each of these episodes at least three times to write this summaries. So I don't think it's a surprise for any listener when we say, we're not going to recommend this show. Don't watch it. If you're into Curious at all, keep listening and we'll tell you why, but just don't. And if you do, for some reason, feel the need to watch it, just watch the English dub instead for reasons we'll explain later. Yes. (laughs) But I I would just like to start this discussion by saying, what is the most important part of a mecha show? The themes. Part of it is the mech. No. Yes. No. (laughs) Yes. The the mechs are kind of important. Yes, but they're not the most important thing. Okay, okay, let me start again. What is one of the most important things in a mecha show? The mechs. Thank the you. The mechs. And let me just say it, the Daimadler sucks as a mech design. He's awful. He's... Why are we saying he? It's, a, it's an inanimate robot. I'm sorry. It has a, it has a human torso. It has like human proportions, but it's got a tiny... Uh, right stick arm that ends not in a hand but in just a ball like a van de graaf generator or maybe some kind of anal toy i don't know <laughs> it's like a it's like a vibrator this is this is the thing is we cannot rule that out yet yes it's and it's got a giant left arm with the only reason for that being an assumed masturbation joke they haven't made yet then it's what also do you mean got- haven't made they've made it by the fact that that's the design Yes, but they haven't made it directly in the show yet. They haven't called it out yet. It's purely visual gag so far. And the two legs are also not uh, also com- slightly different with the left leg having a weird chain around it. And then he also has dreads for that have like really long hair that goes down to his feet. And he's got weird, he's got a weird set of eyes, but no no mouth. It's just an atrocious design. I will say that the, the the first time we see it, it actually seems very promising because the hair is wrapped around it in kind of like a cool mummy design. Mm-hmm. And you're like, man, this could, this could be something. Unfortunately, it is not something. It is nothing. Mm-hmm. It's not like the enemy mechs are any better. Besides that one Iron Maiden penguin mech Ian mentioned that was at least a little bit creative. Yeah, the penguin mechs are just... Well, there's two we really see. There's one that's just a box with a giant penis cannon and two arm flaps and two triangle legs and a little head bob with a nose, with like a beak. And it's just one color silver gray. It's it's really boring. There really isn't a lot to say besides the fact that they suck. And they're just not interesting to look at or... 
enjoyable to to watch move. Uh, I do. I didn't look into this, but do we know who the uh, mech designer for this show was? So the mechanical designer is Takahiro Yamada, who has done design work for lots of things, none of which I care about. Yeah, I mean, there most of these are not very recognizable. Like uh... Zega Pain is the only thing on here that I think I wrote on my list ages ago, but I can't remember why. Um, like we see some for like Beast Wars, which I guess um, goes into the uh, Voltron franchise. Guest mecha design in Gao Gar Gar, which I horribly pronounced. Yeah, there's a few Transformers things in here. I mean, he's been involved in other mech shows like Shin Getter Robo and stuff, mm -hmm. like even if not as a designer. So, like, he's seen competent mech designs. <laughs> This is not uh, one of them. I mean, did, did these designs come from the manga first? Yeah, they do. They do have to be translated into animation, of course. But you know. All right. Sorry. Sorry about going off on that little tidbit. I just felt it was important to get out. Um, it's funny because, like, I actually just talked a lot about on Twitter about what about mechs. Uh, this. Uh, so in the taxonomy of mechs, this would be just a standard mobile suit. Yes. Uh -huh. Um. The only interesting thing I would have to say about this is the fact that they introduce a second seat into the design. But that isn't because Kyoko is really piloting it. She is there mostly she's along for the ride as a passenger. And to have her seat come up and turn around to get her breasts fumbled. Yeah. Oh, that's another show I actually forgot to include in the list of f f powering robots with teenage hormones, Darling in the Franks. But but let's go let's go back to the to the actual episodes. So, uh, I, 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 so I, I want to talk about a little bit about like some of the mech things we've done. Like I thought it was funny to sort of give my my initial description of this purely as a standard mech show, mm -hmm. uh, before springing on the fact that it is a horrible actually show. And I think that you can sort of see this in the things we've described, not just in the fact that I was, in fact, able to do it for the first episode. I could have done it for both of the other episodes as well. There are some tropes that I think are kind of interesting uh, that are relatively common, but um, kind of bear pointing out. There's a rule. Um, I think it's more common in Super Sentai, to be honest. But the first time you introduce anything, it is enough to win the battle. I don't think, like, battles are never won hard fought. They're always won easily by a new trick, which requires a lot of, like, novelty to be brought into it. This is why, like, he gets e defeated easily, but then he, we, he has higher particles, and then he wins easily. He doesn't really have to fight that hard in, in the first time he is in the mech. Usually you just sort of one-shot with a finishing move. But this also goes for the enemies. When you introduce a new enemy, like uh, Ritsu, uh, she has to be shown to be like hyper competent and defeat you, the enemy, uh, defeat us with no difficulty, which leads into training montages and so forth. This show has one of the worst training montages I've ever seen, just because of the fact that there is no training montage. We just say he's about to do some training for ten days, and then we skip to the end of those ten days. Yeah, that's a choice. Given the fact that like his training seems to be abstinence training. I can't imagine he was doing that much for that 10 days. Yeah. He's probably just chained up and locked in a cell somewhere. They at least didn't do the, he enters the door, 
the the doors close, then the doors open, and he steps back out. Also, does this make Ritsu our char clone? <laughs> God no. Um, they do. They break it up with uh, another trope, which is that the villains are never actually fighting, except for when you're fighting them. So you can go and have a ten day training montage, and the enemies are not going to do anything. They just seem to have a party to celebrate. They're going to spend all ten days planning to do something, and then it'll happen whenever you come back. It clearly takes ten days uh, to decide that the next best thing to do is to cover an, uh, uh, cover a city in pants. Well, yeah, the Penguin Empire is not a very dangerous threat. Most of their plans don't involve any sort of destruction or anything. It's just getting people horny and getting them to have sex. That's the main point of their plan. I mean, the, yes, but neither they nor the show's writers seem to understand how uh, human arousal works. So yes. like, <laughs> humans like pants, right? So if we get a lot of pants, there'll be a lot of aroused, right? Yeah, that's definitely how that works. Yeah, just just to 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 show something, this we watched three episodes of this show, and there was not a single laugh it got out of us that wasn't uncomfortable. Yeah, there was no belly laughter of us all. And some people would say it's done its job because of that, but it was it was it was not a good cringe comedy. No. Like, I'm I'm like if I were to describe this show, I would call an etchy mecca. I wouldn't even allow it to be called a comedy mecca. I think that the comedy elements, such as they are, the best attempts they did were like the oh we need to escape from the goons. My umbrella is going to have fireworks come out of it. <laughs> or when the enemy have went round to his house and they don't chase him immediately because they feel it is their duty to neatly put away his pornographic books. Yes, or the reason for our heroine's tragic backstory being that her father was traumatized. Well, that, that immediately becomes not funny. The, these were like the best they could do. It wasn't good. Uh, the reason I will say that you should, if you were going to watch this, you should watch the dub is because I actually think the localizers have done a I don't know how I don't know what the best adjective to use is heroic question mark <laughs> job of trying to make this funny. Um they they do a good job of localizing the references to like use more standard Western sexual terminology. They they put in the work. The work is not in service of the good. But they put in the work, so I will give them a, a minor clap for that. Also, you get to hear Matt Mercer doing all these lines. Yes. Like, this was the most enjoyment I got out of this show, was uh, listening to Matt Mercer and imagining him do this. I see this incredibly douchey character. Yes. Like, he does a good job of portraying the douchey character, I will say. Uh, again, not necessarily something to be proud of. I guess we should say, just for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, Matt Mercer, is he's one of the more famous Western voice actors. Uh, in recent years, anyway. I guess, like, people would know him from Overwatch. Mm-hmm. Fire Emblem, whichever game it is. Uh, he's Jack Cooper in Titanfall 2. Oh, yeah. He's also in uh, JoJo. He's Levi from Attack on Titan. Uh, and to wrap this all up, and we are fans of him from Critical Role, which yes. is a 
excellent RPG show. Let, let's go back and go through these episodes in a little bit more detail. Mostly. Not a ton more, but... Yeah, yeah, at least some. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Uh, so if we, if we start with episode one, as Ian has said, not a lot really happens, the fairly stand-up mecha episode. It's really all about introducing us to Koichi as our main protagonist, and as we've already said, he's a massive, unlikable douchebag that I don't want to watch anymore of, but sadly I suggested this show, so we had to watch two more episodes. Easily the worst protagonist we've had on this podcast. Yes. There is not a single scene within this first episode where he's not being a sexual deviant of some kind. His introduction character is getting chewed up by a guidance counselor, so... Well, as that's happening, he stares at her breasts, and then he gropes her and runs away and flips over some girl's skirts on the way. The next thing is we see him going to an overpass to stare at uh, to stare at women who are walk up on who are up on the catwalk to see their panties. Then he meets Kyoko. His first reaction is, of course, to stare at her breasts and hit on her and mention how big they are. Then he gets his ass kicked. He fondles her for a little bit. He kicks the uh, asses of the penguins that are trying to get him and then he just goes home because he doesn't want to uh, have anything to do with this really he has no good reason to fight that's one of the two things that we need to do in a mech show is we need to establish our protagonists uh, and how they're introduced into the conflict and why they are fighting his reason is just i'm the chosen one it's not even that it's it might be interesting so i'll do it well no but like the the sort of meta justification is that he yes. has the most powerful error particles. Yeah. So, like, he definitely thinks very highly of himself. He often refers to himself as, like, a cool guy. Like, I think in another show, he might actually, like, be a cool protagonist, except for the fact that he kind of uh, has, like, an evilness to him. He looks like a Go Nagai character design, which is weird because nothing else in the show really does. A little bit, yeah. He's got, like... Lines under his eyes that make him look like he's constantly angry or really tired. And the reason he's not he's getting chewed up by the guidance counselor is that he is not wearing the correct uniform. He has decided instead that all cool people wear a gakuran, which you're, you've definitely seen before. It's the sort of like Prussian-inspired uh, school uniform that were much more popular in like uh, like the 1950s. Like any old anime, they're all wearing this. Like the black delinquent uniform. That probably is partly what makes him look like a go-on-a-guy character. I feel like part of the core of this show is justifying the main character's uh, sexual harassment because it gives mm -hmm. him the power to save the world. Once you started from that point, <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to, to go anywhere. You know what you could have improved, immediately improved this show? You don't make him a massive, like, public pervert. He's just a normally horny teenage boy. And Kyoko, uh, like, uh, and Kyoko constantly spends her time trying to seduce him and, like, coming on to him to get the high arrow particles up. Uh, see, uh, what I thought no. you were going to say, Danny, is that you do the uh, public-private split where... Uh, the heroes are like done as like uh, bastions of purity, but uh, off screen or like out of the public view, they're all massive perverts, and that's actually uh -huh. what's powering up. Yeah, maybe that would introduce a nice dichotomy, but I still wouldn't watch it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, like no, this this wouldn't have made it 
made it good, it just would have made it better, but just giving Kyoko some more agency and choosing yes. to use her sexuality in this conflict, because she's really just there to be groped against her will, because she yeah. has to, otherwise she's going to die. I want to come back to Kyoko Ayo, but, but first I think we should just finish off our discussion of Koichi Madame Hashi. Yeah. When you have like a harem show, the uh, we often talk uh, like I haven't I I almost never watch them anymore. But the joke there is that the characters are so bland and have no personality because they they come from games where they have no personality, so that you can self insert as them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and live out a fantasy. Um, he cannot function that way because his personality is strong and based entirely in male entitlement to female. Body. Yes. If you are self-inserting as him, it's because you feel entitled to female bodies, which isn't good because both in Japan and in the West, there are a huge problem with uh, pickup artist culture, incel culture, yeah. men going their own way, etc. etc. Well, one of the distinguishing things between him and many other harem protagonists is that the perversion of a large variety of harem protagonists comes from the lucky pervert trope. They're really made responsible by the universe for their own actions. They always just accidentally stumble into the women's breast and pull up their skirt and then grab them for a few seconds. Or the women are accidentally naked, then in Tulovru, an alien experiment goes awry and he gets wrapped up and he only he has no choice but to pull off her panties to save yeah. him. I got soap in my eyes, so I walked into the female's bath of exactly. the by mistake, and then I slipped on the soap and landed in their breasts. And this Where's... is it. This is its own brand of awful. I don't Ooh. think we need to say yes. why. But Koichi is even worse because of his just unrepentant sexism on his own terms. He might be worse, but from like a writing perspective, I'm not sure if it's uh, worse or not to do it this way. Hmm. Uh-huh. So, so, so to end, so to end on this and move on to Kyoko, I'll briefly mention that Koichi Madambashi is voiced by Nobunaga Shimazaki. Say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah. Nobunaga Shimazaki. Nobunaga Shimazaki. Nobunaga Shimazaki. Nobunaga Shimazaki. Nobunaga Shimazaki. Well, I feel like it's incumbent on me to mention at least one other terrible, uh, edgy show that they've been in. So he was the main character in "I Will Become the Twin Tails." Uh, he's done other stuff like uh, he uh, Hurricane Anasi and Free, uh, Yuki Soma and Fruits Basket. Like he's he's done a lot of stuff. He's very he's very competent. I guess uh, his performance here is weird because it feels like he's been directed to be like your uh, your one off shouty shonen villain, which kind of. If you were to have played this show a completely different way and have it from Kyoko's perspective, it might actually work. But I also don't think this show would be good if they did it that way, so I no. don't know. One, one last note. Ian, in his notes, wrote at the top of the Koichi section, any redeeming qualities, question mark? The answer is no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Kyoko um, is the person who should be playing off of him as like a foil for the comedy mm. normally in like your more edgy shows like she's the one who is like often like a cindera type character like they're the victim but they hyper react and that's where the comedy comes from instead uh-huh. she's very much meek and submissive although it's it's made blatantly obvious that she's not very comfortable with it no, she's like she always does the what what are you crazy i don't want to do that but then it's 
to you. Uh, then Kyochi, uh, Koichi just goes, well, it's either that or you're dead. So... And then in, a, in episode three, it gets really bad. Episode three is the is where they really just screw her over as a character. Mm. Yeah. Because now the arc is that he uh, Koichi has to learn abstinence because the mind is the greatest sexual organ, which is, I guess, true. This manifests as him acting somewhat cold to her because uh, he is now almost hyperly aware of any sexual aspects of her, her smell, everything about her. And so he kind of feels like he has to restrain himself. But she is interpreting this as him putting a distance between her and him, which implies that, well, she is no longer needed. And the way she, I, it comes across is that she feels unwanted. Which mm-hmm. is a terrible character moment for her. I mean, it's the classic, oh, I, uh, she actually did like being sexually assaulted the whole time. And mm-hmm. no, no actually means yes, etc. And we haven't even mentioned any of the other female characters in the show. We'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it, because I actually think Recants is a very good contrast um, with her. The thing is, Kyoko Sonan, one of the interesting things is that she does have a reason to fight. It's just not a very good reason. Yeah. The show thinks to play up that reason as one of its main highlight jokes. It just thinks that, that that it's a really funny idea that her father was like part of the initial negotiations of the Penguin Empire. He was the head ambassador like two years ago when the empire, the Penguin Empire, first came on. The- mm-hmm. Yes, and when they did so, they did like a lewd dance where they the penguins essentially have front tails, which are just their penises. They did like a lewd dance and thrust the, uh, their tails into the faces of like the. the negotiation party and that somehow traumatized her father so much he's now in a hospital bed yay gay panic jokes <laughs> like it's literally like oh dad do you want a banana and it's get that phallic fruit away from me it's just awful it's like jesus christ uh yoko hikasa is playing kyoko and she's doing a relatively standard uh victim voice and i really wish i did i didn't phrase it that way, but I'm phrasing it that way. She's very prolific. If you've heard of her, you've definitely heard of her as Miyawakiyama from Kaon. She is prolific, which means, unfortunately, she's accustomed to sexualized characters, whether that's Stephanie Dole in No Game, No Life. Uh, did they sexualize the main character in Danganronpa, uh, Kyoko Kirigiri? Uh, no, not at all. Interesting. It's also just a weird thing that Mio is, like, there's the whole joke about her uh, getting put in situations he's uncomfortable with, which is yeah. the, the worst thing about Kale. And, and Danganronpa, she's uh, she's essentially a kudere. The I want to contrast her with Recant Sieber, uh, who is like the other major female character. I'll basically always refer to her as Ritsu because it's easier. Now, she actually does seem to have some agency by contrast. Well, she's doing it for the villain. It's not really clear what her motivations are for joining the evil team, other than that she really likes penguins. She has agency, but then her first major scene is her going in the penguin place and them all assaulting her. And her jerking off everybody in the penguin place, because that's essentially what she does. Yes. 
Like, she is a completely a fan service character, which is not made any better by the fact that she is clearly a school. Uh, I believe I read on the Japanese Wikipedia that she was 13 or 14. I will say at least she seems to be, at least she seems to be doing it for her own reasons. Like, we've all read Lolita, right? Yes. Yes. Like, the fact that she is somewhat precocious in there and that she actually seems to have some agency in that show doesn't take up, make up for the fact that she is being groomed. Mm -hmm. And the penguins are like, ah, oh, man, if you really want, we'll let you into your family. And they say that while they're all together in the bath and she's standing there like that one famous Pornhub image, like that, that meme of the woman sitting on the couch and all the guys behind her. I didn't actually know about this meme, Danny. Thanks for that. You didn't? <laughs> No. Also, oh, it's just like our only female character with any agency, and she's the villain. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> like we have, we have like three more characters, female characters. They're like the professors of our good guy organization. They're there to make sexual innuendo jokes, and be, to be ogled at in, in the ending of the show and the actual show. So yeah, I mean, she's uh, Kyo, uh, not Kyoko, uh, Ritsu is a bit more interesting at least because she is also a factor, and if we assume that factorness can only come from high arrow, par uh, high arrow particles which can only come from being somewhat horny, and I don't think that's entirely true then like, at least, I guess they gave a female character her own sexuality <sighs> So bad, if you hadn't guessed. So, so bad. So, uh, so uh, character design-wise, she's like the much smaller. She's like the stereotypical lolly type character. I mean, mm. the middle school lolly. One interesting thing I like about her is that uh, she has an interesting speech pattern. Now, uh, they often do this in anime to differentiate characters. Like, we know who the Ojo Samas are because they're ending sentences in wa, and they go, oh, <laughs> uh, she uses uh, an interesting pronoun, chin, which is a pronoun that like an emperor would have used. So it gets translated as the royal we uh, in the translation and in the dub. And this ties in a little bit with the speech things they do with the Penguin Empire, which is that they all kind of sound somewhat like samurai. Uh, it's all ware and degozaru. <laughs> The next point I'd like to talk about is the fan service in the show itself. We already discussed plenty about how it's unhealthy regarding its female characters and the idea of consent, but it's a much more explicit style of fan service than some other ecchi shows do. So we get the occasional panty shot, but we get a lot of just full-on uh, naked breast shots. Like, we mm. saw the uncensored version. Mm-hmm. And I assume that's where all the budget went, but... Gotta spend that very money. Yeah, compared to some other edgy shows that focus, that always obscure those things a lot more by hiding them behind um, objects and scenery or having the protagonist cover it up, there is a lot more direct sexual nudity in this show. Right, and I, I, made, I made that like little joke about the Blu-rays. Uh, having Blu-rays reintroduce uh, elements that were censored for the TV show isn't new. But in those shows, they are obscured for the television version, whereas like there's only so much you could have obscured for the TV version in this, unless like there's the, the city is just covered in a mist the entire time. 
Which means they probably uh, redrew some of it. Mm -hmm. Which is also quite common for Blu-rays. Yeah, like, I have no doubt that everything we saw in this episode was covered by sparkles or mist. But they really should have just made it a straight-up hentai. <laughs> they wouldn't have been able to get the uh, <laughs> the production money for that. That's probably true, yeah. Also, the manga's not a hentai, so... That's a good point, actually, yeah. Do we actually have anything interesting to say about the anime? Because I feel like a lot of the stuff we're going to see about the production stuff in the show is... It was fine. Uh, there was some weird editing in the first episode. The the action scene in the construction yard felt like it was edited choppily, but not really to like convey anything. So it just felt jarring, but not jarring in a good way. Otherwise, the action scenes were mostly kind of boring. <laughs> the director is Tetsuya Yanag Yanagisawa. I pronounced that wrong. Whose work is, well, I'll just name a few things Destiny of the Shrine Maiden, Shattered Angels, and probably most importantly, High School DxD, which is a common element for pretty much every major staff role in this. They've all Surprising. worked on High School DxD, which is probably a better show than this for whatever that's worth. Yeah, I, I personally have nothing to say about the show animation-wise. Like, it was, as Ian has said, fine. Which, what more can you say when you describe a show as fine? It was completely made. The colors were in the correct spaces. There were no major animation mistakes of legs, of weird legs or that. No visual creativity. No real, like, no creative visual uh, gags. The only thing that really stood out to me was the CG cars, which for a show that was made in 2014 looked really, really bad. Like we've had way better C CG integration in much earlier shows. I'm not going to rack on it too much for that because there are plenty of things even in 2014 that looked about shit. I would say that the only thing that was like I was reasonably happy with was the effects work done. It was good. It was fine. It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, like there, I think there was one scene that I, uh, I will, I will stick out, which was the in the first episode when their uh, the robot breaks through the flower clock, and the bits of flower they're breaking provide the sort of sacra fall that is so stereotypical. Uh -huh. That was reasonably done. There was a. Uh, a visual thing where with the website of the Penguin Empire, which was fun. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was actually probably the only good joke. <laughs> but other than that, the water was fine, but way too sparkly because I've got to mention that water. Also, higher frame rate than everything else. Someone do water in a way that I like. Like, ask the Aria people; they got it right. All right, next let's move on to the music then, which was also just fine. I've got nothing to say about it. So Ryosuke Nakanishi, also the composer for High School DxD, also Bakuon. I don't know what to say about that. Bakuon was fine. Best thing musically here is Kuriko, uh, the first season. Here the music direction is to play all of the music completely straight, and therefore it will be funny because our show is a quote-unquote comedy. Um, it didn't really work. Like that, that kind of like intentional uh, dissonance can be really good. It was like when the, when the opening kicked in in the first episode, I, I kind of wanted to, laugh, but it was mostly just because of how utterly cliche it was. 
<laughs> so yeah, speaking of, uh, the opening is also called uh, Kenzen Robo Daimidler. This is by a group formed by Masaki Endo, more famously of Jam Project. He's had a lot of experience doing song work for Super Sentai and Mech shows, so... Danny's favorite boy. Danny's yeah. favorite boy. <laughs> uh, so, it's the sort of, like, standard J-rock music to launch a mech to that we would expect. Don't look too hard at the lyrics. No! Like, just, 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 just don't look at the lyrics. Then you won't feel terrible about singing along to it. But it's okay. Because if you don't if you don't look at the lyrics, you could take this and replace it with any other mech show that Jam Project or Endo has done in opening two, and it would work fine. Well, I was going to say based purely on the tune, I think I thought you'd probably like it, but I no, actually, I don't think it's that great. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't either. But yeah, but 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 I, you know how I really like those, like um, Shin Get a Robo versus Neo Get a Robo has one of my favorite openings of all time just based on the on the tune and that was also an endo song but mm-hmm. this is just a much worse version of that uh visually it's nothing special standard pants of action poses characters arranged in the familiar vertical composition so that you can have the camera go up and you see all the villains mechs launching capes billowing in the wind staring into the mid distance this could be any mech show's opening shot composition strongly favors the center rather than like following the rule of three or something it's fine the only interesting thing is also, unfortunately, Etchy. <laughs> there was an interesting choice where the grasping hand, and I use grasping advisedly, goes over some silhouettes of like female characters, and it actually reveals under their clothes. It would be a clever touch if it weren't deeply upsetting. Yarry, <laughs> <sighs> yarry. The ending. I'm much happier about the ending. I mean, it's not fantastic. Uh, this is Suki Suki Links. Uh, the people singing are the voice actors for the three female pro- professors in the show. It's kind of a bouncy, childish J-pop, which is also reflected in the animation. Like the animation has the sort of pulsing nature anime style, uh-huh. where it's just it's just going between like a few frames, but it's getting bigger and smaller. It's also a lot more colorful. Yeah, I would call it like if you think papercraft or musical theater, you're in the right ballpark. Uh, I would like to compare it to like Girls and Panzer's Intermission, or the ending to Saki, or the ending to Maria Holic, all of which have their own problematic element, but moving on. It looks okay, but it kind of falls flat because there's just some basic sexualization of the characters for no value in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. The ending is an interesting choice because you have the credits in the middle and you like it's split into thirds. The lower thirds, we, just, we have the three professors walking along. Uh, whereas at the top, there's like an escalator style where you get little vignettes like the other characters it's kind of clever it's a successful ending it's the least worst thing <laughs> it is what the ending really reminds me of is the ending for needless which is kind of a similar bouncy vibe but also really sexualized characters in its more colorful style and needless is also a show that exists in the medium of anime should we watch needless it's probably be a lot more fun than this uh, I, I I remember not liking it. <sighs> okay, we've covered animation, we've covered music. Please tell me we've got other stuff to talk about. <laughs> yes, we should. We can move on to our central discussion topic, which we've already talked around. It's fringes a bunch, but we should make it. We could talk about it now, which is just sex and sex positivity in anime. So, just to start off with, none of us are experts. Lots of people have written lots of stuff about this before us. 
also another disclaimer we're not kink shaming anybody like if this is what you're into that's fine yeah we're not trying to stop the show from existing if you genuinely like it we're not uh, we're not trying to shit on you no we're just telling you you have bad taste no <laughs> <laughs> look every show is someone's favorite show all i'm gonna say is I could look away from some of this stuff when I was 17. Like, I could watch Saki and be like, sure, Nodoka's uh, breasts are being brought up way too often, and there's some sexualization of the other characters. But I'm not watching this for the breasts. I'm watching it for the stupid Mahjong. I used to be able to watch harem stuff. Like, and then I think it was... Uh, uh, shit, what is it? Uh, vampire, Ice Girl... Rosario to Vampire. Where I was just like, I can't deal with this shit anymore. <laughs> to try and put it succinctly, just be aware of the problematic elements of the <laughs> the, the media you like. Especially, yes. I mean, right. the whole thing is like that. But all of our faves have problematic parts too. Certainly. All right. Would anybody like to start us on this topic? It's your topic, Daniel. I uh, okay, so this is a very deep and complicated topic with many factors to consider. We've already mentioned some of them, such as the distinction between the lucky pervert and the pervert protagonist. But one of the things that I think would serve as a starting point is that the reason for the existence of ecchi anime in its current form comes from, I think, and the sources I've read, an emphasis on the male gaze to the ex- due to the expected slash planned target audience, disregarding the reality of actual audience. Anime is air quotes. Like I'm going to be air quoting a lot during this uh, <laughs> section, and the target audience of uh, anime seems to be men around the age categories of 17 to early 20s. When we think of fan service, an implicit mental association that is often made is with shows like this. The fan and fan service is implicitly a man. I would like to explicitly call out Weekly Shonen Jump. Weekly Shonen Jump knows that about half of their audience are women. They have the data, they can, they can back that up. But we also know that there is limited female fan service in their works whereas there are they have had to love rue and even things like one piece which are very popular with the female fandom only seem to include or primarily include male oriented fan service hetero male oriented fan service one of the things i'd like to actually point out here is is a manga that me and ian and i don't know how fred feels about it but me and ian both really like which is bakuman and in mm-hmm. that manga, at the very uh, beginning, our two authors are discussing like various Shonen Jump manga and talking about their favorites. And they talk about Two Love Rue, and they call it just a true boys manga. Well, that's exactly what I would expect from Bakuman and uh, that pair of authors. I mean, like we really liked Bakuman, but they're, they're the Death Note people, right? Yes. Which means they also did Platinum End which is a trash fan service manga. And I've unfortunately only heard bad things about the female characters in Bakuman, and the female characters in Death Note were... Uh, well, ba- Bakuman, we kind of have... Uh, what's her name? Yoshida? Oh, uh, Kaya. 
uh, Kaya, at least in Bakaman, is reasonable. Yes. All the other ones, not so much. She's mostly a supporting character, but she's a very supportive and is just kind of a nice person who is just cheerleading them along. But she still, she still kind of acts within the power dynamic as the support character. Exactly. Her own dream of writing, um, like phone novels, is kind of treated as as a distraction by the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the reason I wanted to bring this up is just to highlight the implicit bias Ian was talking about and mm-hmm. shooting jump of making Chulo Vuru, which is not really, not spawned the genre of any way, but it's, I think it's like the defining harem manga that represents the lucky pervert shonen jump harem yeah. tropes that we all associate with the medium. And yeah, thus it's... highlighting that as an example of a true boys manga shows the expectation that are placed on being a boy thus implying that only by liking these kind of things are you a true boy. Yeah, and I think it's important that we yeah. me- that we mention the manga that we like that also do this, just so that we, we're not like, oh, well, we're better than this because we don't like any of that over-sexualized <laughs> mm. crap. Like, fuck, the first manga I remember reading in, like, a, to a, the, mo- the majority of was Negima. That <laughs> literally, chapter one, he sneezes and a woman's clothes fall off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes away after the first volume, but he literally did that. And there's a lot more fan service later on as well. I mean, w- one of my favorite anime is Monogatari, so. Mm-hmm. And and me and Ian both really like Nana Tukaro, but that that's a whole different uh, story. But getting back on, po- on point, yeah. this is nothing that we should really say is unique to manga or Japan. No. no. You only need to look back over the last 20 years <laughs> and like most western shows mm-hmm. uh we treat female nudity as kind of like uh an oddity or in the case of stars as a selling point <laughs> for mm-hmm. their shows like specifically here we have the japanese idols who act in this weird dichotomy where they need to be pure idols who shouldn't have contact with any men and if they do they get punished by shaving their head getting exiled from the industry, various other things, but at the same time, they are expected to perform in skimpy outfits for the pleasure of men in concerts. Like, how many how many like shows have you seen like set in the West where like a bunch of guys go to a strip club? A lot. And how would do we treat and we treat but and we treat that very differently from the few episodes where it's uh, women that are enjoying the male form. When when men go to a script club, like if we use "How I Met Your Mother" because you you wanted you listed Barney Stinson in our talking points, but if we look at that there, when they go to the strip club, it's often treated as yeah, we'll just go to the strip club. But in in sitcoms, when women hire like a stripper, it's always only for like a bachelor party thing, or when they go to the like in Friends when they hire Danny, Danny DeVito as a stripper. <laughs> so that that is a pretty funny scene. Yeah, and it's just sort of seen as pathetic, both for the men involved and the women. Mm-hmm. But when women go to a strip club in like sitcoms and stuff, it's always treated as a really funny thing. The fact that they're in a strip club, which is a place they're not supposed to be in. But uh, going going back to like anime in Japan, like both both the West and Japan have an emphasis on bodily purity in women uh, within media, though for different yes. uh, reasons. Like in the West, it's all about our Christian. It's about the very heavily Christianized past and the views on sex there. Whereas Eastern, it's mostly um, 
screens for bodily purity of like the soul and stuff. I don't really well, know enough. To- those are the uh, stated justifications for it, anyway. But you know, of course, they're both stem from a conservative desire to control women's uh, bodily autonomy. I will give a non-sexual example here. So uh, I watch Sumo because I'm a weirdo. The, and Sumo has a lot of restrictions on what women can do. For instance, they are not allowed to enter the doyo because they're very in a, a their very being on it is seen as making the doyo impure. Even if they're going to provide medical attention for an injured wrestler, it's the classical. You can't have a woman on a ship. It's bad luck. Oh, yeah. I've forgotten all about that one. The the reason I bring up bodily purity in in stories like these is that. In edgy stories, they often get treated with a lot of fondling and perverted accidents, but the actual act of sex is rarely shows up. <laughs> yeah, rarely happens more than once, because if they have sex in stories like these, they immediately get pregnant and thus transition from a sexual lover figure to a pure mother figure, because mm-hmm. the story is unwilling to deal with the various unfortunate implications that come with a woman enjoying sex and actively desiring it. Slut-shaming and all of that. Yeah. Like we talked about when we were watching the show is oh he's just constantly fondling her breasts and I don't I highly doubt the show is going to go much further than that like maybe there's going to be some kissing and groping of other areas but there's there's no way they're going to have any kind of direct sex. And of course the ultimate example of this uh it's just locker talk is the pre- current president of the United States. <laughs> How much do we want to like talk more about all the horrible things that could happen, or do we have positive positive examples we would like to talk about? I mean, the last the, like the last really horrible thing I want to mention is the Japanese prostitution laws, anti prostitution laws, which uh... where it's a crime. Yes, where prostituting yourself is a crime, but using a prostitute is not a crime. Yeah. Which is the opposite of the way it is in many European countries, including, I believe, our own. Yes, which, I mean, they're both fucked. Normalized sex work, etc. Uh, give them a union, etc., etc. And and the media just... The big problem with all of this, with, with all of these things, and the reason, we, the reason we're really talking about this is because it's... Because of, uh, like, sex positivity in, in anime isn't really a thing. It's always... It's often viewed as a negative, and all the perverted accidents are just seen as things that boys do it's ingrained into the character this was why we made such a big deal of when sayu wanted to have sex in number six because it was like holy shit yeah mm-hmm. people just have sex because they want to and yes. have sexual agency good job number six for that very very low hurdle it's almost like you were written by a woman although that's not a uh, thing internalized misogyny etc the real danger of all of this comes through the reinforcement of all of these ideas we've talked about in young children through the reading of these stories in magazines such as shonen jump because as ian has said women like 50 like half of their audience is almost certainly women but if they read these stories that these are presented as the default the status quo this is how it's supposed to be then it's not unreasonable to assume that some children will assume these points of view because we are just what we consume, both food-wise and media-wise. It's it's how we form our characters. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but okay. Please elaborate then. Well, I mean, there's your environment. 
Well, Denny, here, let, 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 me phrase, let me phrase it in a very particular way for you. Let's talk about violence. Mm -hmm. How much people have you killed in a video game? Millions. And are you a murderer? <laughs> yes, but that's neither here nor there. So, except for Denny, who is a murderer, like most people are able to uh, sort of differentiate, at least particularly with violence, we're so used to saying like, well, of course, video games don't cause violence. We're just sort of like blowing off steam and it's, it's all in good fun. And that's not in entirely true, but we have a greater uh, like appreciation for in society that violence is not acceptable. Yes. Whereas, like, I hate to say this in 2020, but we don't take violence against women seriously enough. Um, I mean, if anything, if anything, the last four years have proven that more so than ever. Like, shit. Like, so I had a book down uh, that I pre-ordered uh, because I thought it was interesting. Uh, it's by Laura Bates, the woman behind Everyday Sexism. It's literally called Men Who Hate Women. And I read, and like, it was just a sort of a sheer coincidence that like the, I had pre-ordered it and it came out like days before we recorded this podcast. And so I'm just sitting here like reading horror story after horror story. And it's just, fuck. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm lucky. I'm a guy. I don't have to deal with this shit. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what makes it. That's the big problem. That's what makes it so easy because we don't have to deal. With, because it's so easy for those in a position of power to look at things and say that's not a problem because it's not a problem for for me. You're right, but I'm. I wouldn't say that it's not never a problem for male presenting people. Um, in fact, there the problem is that they're not—they're never taken seriously, and then the the right. asshole MRA type people uh, will take that and go, "Ha, fuck you, feminism! You're actually ruining everything for men, etc." Yeah. Which, like, sexual assault on men is a feminist issue. I'm just going to say this one last thing, and then I'm going to stop talking because mm. it's it's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was reading some of the uh, reviews of this show on Mal, like a bunch of people refer to this show as a parody show. This show is not a parody show. Uh, what is it parodying? <laughs> if we look at the works that uh, TNK have done, all their work is tremendously stuffed with this sort of content. It doesn't provide any interesting perspective on mecha as a genre. It's just using mecha as a vehicle for uh, an etchy quote-unquote yeah. comedy. It's also not a good parody of mech shows in any way whatsoever. It's just a mech show. And more, and more importantly is that I don't think this is because I have a terrible sense of humor. Like, I can see these jokes. I could see similar jokes working in certain com, com, in context. Mm -hmm. But particularly when it comes to, like, shock comedy, it's about knowing your audience and about sort of feeling safe that everyone is taking it in the proper context and that we're like appreciating it as this is funny because it's not it's not something people say like, like the worst thing you could say about a comic like say frankie boyle is that he's telling it like it is because he's not he is saying things for shock and effect we need to some sort of realize that what we're writing off as banter or jokes or satire it stops being funny when it's all you're doing yeah mm. 
this would be funny if there was one show a year that was like the edgy show and we were all like, ha ha ha, look at how backwards and regressive this is. But how many of these are there every fucking season? Also, if there weren't like, you know, a bunch of actual people who felt that they were entitled to uh, do the stuff that the main character does. Damn real people, they have to ruin it for everybody. I'm sorry for the people listening to this that they're just hearing us like rant and lecture and sermonize. (laughs) Uh, especially because I expect many of the people who are listening to this already know it. But people have a lot of bad opinions about anime fandom. Yes. Mm-hmm. And at least some of it is justified because of how overly sexualized it is. Well, particularly objectification. I would love for there to be a million more sex-positive shows and genuinely sex-positive for everyone involved. And it's not like you can't delve into the negative side of things either you just have to <laughs> you just have to do it really well yeah yeah so so let's talk about then let's talk about some of the more positive examples from within the medium that we can consider or that we are aware of Freya, i think you mentioned when we talked about it yesterday the woman called fujiko mine yes which is a mostly i mean uh, to be honest any work by sayo Sari yamamoto all of her three <laughs> shows are uh, fairly sex positive, I'd say, in that their the characters have a great deal of agency over their um, sexualization, and if they don't, it's usually handled all right. I know everybody likes to rag on Yuri on Ice for being a <sighs> yaoi fan service show. Uh, you're you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like yes there is fan service in there and i know we've ragged on that for the last however long but fan service in and of itself isn't always bad um especially if you know it's going to be there going in um mm. also i would say pretty much every character in it has agency over the way they express their sexuality yeah like another show that i'm i've not seen it though I, i'm still planning to watch it is Oh, Maidens in Your Savage Season, a show by oh. Mario Kada, which where the things I've read is say, mostly say that it's a show about teenage girls exploring their own sexuality in their last year of high school. It's complicated, that show. I th- other people have written better things on it than I could say in uh, five seconds, so I won't. I will say it does a bit of a disservice to its uh, only lesbian character. Ah, that's a shame. Ian, do you have any examples you'd like to state? So it's not without its problems, but I'm going to uh, highlight the work of Am- uh, Amazume Ryuta. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I should say Ryuta Amazune. Every other Japanese name I've done Western style. Uh, <laughs> force of habit, I guess. He is a person who writes more pornographic works. Uh, the one that I guess people are familiar with is Nanashou Karu. So this is a show that in particular uh, takes on uh, BDSM and portrays it in a more positive light than it is generally done. There is no, uh, there's like a heavily focus on thinking about what your partner wants and what they're comfortable with and the work that goes into it. Mm. It also just explores um, a sexual subculture from a place of knowledge, which a lot of these things aren't. Yes. Like someone's like, oh well, I just want to write a novel about a dominatrix, and it falls back on stereotypes. As uh, Amazon Rita has done, written about a lot of sexual topics, including uh, BDSM, cuckoldry, doll play, 
etc and he takes it more seriously than most people would pinch of salt but there's that i haven't seen it and this is maybe slightly off but um i've heard a lot of people talk about um oshiete gaoko-chan oh yes as being fairly positive about this sort of thing and in particular about the relations between teenagers and about body positivity and stuff like that so i haven't read it but lots of people i trust say that it's mostly good probably has some issues but you know what doesn't uh some other manga that i'd like to point to are um one that i'm not sure because i've not actually read most of it is a manga called futari echi which has been going on for ages by now at least 20 something years and it's just a manga that teaches the reader about sex and various positions how to please your partner better uh what to the do's and don'ts of um certain sexual styles like it has couples of all types i think it's it's up to volume 68 at least Mm -hmm. when you say all types does that include same sex oh, yes I mean, same yes, gen- same gender sorry i think uh, i think when i actually checked in the last chapter it, it did like that was just about a same gender couple so one of them identified as a woman oh cool i, I wouldn't i wouldn't say it's a thrilling read uh, no but... it's, it's it's more of an educational uh manga but like a, yeah, yeah. But like i say we're, we're already past chapter 650 mm. so <laughs> if you want something more funny or more thrilling there's dochokyo kureshi x dochokyo kanojo which is just a straightforward girlfriend and straightforward boyfriend which is a high school comedy about two very straightforward people exploring their relationship and it's it's a it's a funny manga in its own right but it actually treats the topic of sexual relationship within teenagers with a great amount of seriousness as in they're both both curious about sex and they both want to have it with each other and the the protagonist does like a great deal of research into what he should do, what he shouldn't do, like like what what are the risks of having sex, protection, all of that stuff. Although it it would be nice to name an example that's uh, uh, goes into the more messy side of things, but I can't, uh, except for Fujiko Mini, I guess. Okay, so now that we've hopefully calmed down a little bit by discussing slightly better things. We can go back and give our ratings for this show. Now, normally I have a funny thing to rate out of five, but honestly, I'm kind of down. I'm too down to do that. So we're just rating out of five stars. <laughs> so for uh, out of five stars, please. Um. So uh, the show is awful. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people who like to rate things in a sort of okay. So the the animation was an 8 out of 10, but the story was only a 3 out of 10, and the characters were a 6 out of 10, and, you know, that kind of garbage. That's that's a terrible way to rate anything. Uh, at its core, the themes of this show are abhorrent, and that's not a reason <laughs> to say that it is bad. But I also... Actually, no, that is a perfectly valid reason to say it's bad. Yes. Um, not every time, but certainly in this case. And quite aside from that, it really failed as a mm, fighting show. So I can only give it a one out of five, if not a point and a half, but I'm not that mean, I guess. So one out of five. All right. How about you, uh, Ian? Right. So 
like, like you were saying, if we think about, or if we just, if we just thought about it as like, what did it do good? What it did good was pretty average at best. <laughs> so we, so we started two point five and we and we kept down. <laughs> Ah, the thing is, right, is like, it's like you say, it's, what is good about this show? I don't fucking know. <laughs> like, it's like if you gave me, like, a wonderful meal, and then you vomited over it. Like, yes, you cooked the steak to perfection, but you also vomited on it. <laughs> Except here, it's like you sort of half-cooked the steak, and it's, <laughs> you didn't turn it properly. It's, you don't fucking turn steaks over, what am I talking about? So, Star Driver was a one and a half. I think Star Driver was better than this. I think that's completely fair. Yes, I think Star Driver was infinitely better than this, but that's okay. That's not how that's not how scale, that's not how scales work. Yeah, if we watch Star Driver next week, we probably would have been much less harsh on Star Driver. Yeah, I, I can't give it higher than a one either. <laughs> like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, this was your show. Yeah, so as Freya said, the show failed at being a fighting show. But it didn't just fail at being a fighting show. It also failed at being a parody. It failed at being a comedy. It failed at being a mech show. I'm not sure if it was trying to be a parody. We don't know that, but some people are saying that. So even if it did, yeah, it enough. still failed. And it also failed at being a... Like, the point of edgy shows is that they're at least somewhat supposed to be sexually arousing or intriguing to the audience. It also felt miserably on that level, because there was nothing interesting going on there beyond some non-consensual groping. Just watch porn instead, or yeah, read, yeah. What, what, do whatever else you do. Yeah. To... Like the sh so the show, for me, failed on every consensual uh, on every level. Consensual. <laughs> yes. I did not consent to this show, it violated me. <laughs> Except you did, you showed that you fucking... Yes, exactly. It's your fault. <laughs> uh, but no, um, I chose this show mostly because uh, of something that I'll never do again. I saw a random Reddit thread that talked about mech shows, and some people said, hey, Dime Dollar, that's not a bad mech show, it's like a more comedy-focused mech show. So I thought, huh, I've seen this penguin thing before, and I've... <laughs> I remember vaguely some things that were positively said about it. Beyond that, I knew absolutely nothing, so that's why I chose it. And Freya said they didn't want to be mean and give it uh, below a 1, so I'm just going to give it a, one point, a 0 0.5 and say, fuck you, show. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so the show has an average of 0 0.67. Vunderbar. Uh, let's do it 0.83. Oh, who cares? Making it the lowest rated show on this podcast. Uh, you're right, sorry. Uh, I failed to maths. And making this just a roller coaster of weeks going from the pretty good number f number six to the fantastic Yokohama shopping to the absolute bottom of the pile, Diamond Dollar. It's going to happen sometimes. I think the only the, the, the only benefit to this show is that it has now made me rethink Orini Twin Tails <laughs> in a better light. Because that show... As long as we only watched the one episode of it, which we did, we only watched the one episode of it, was funny only because someone actually made this show. This show isn't even, it's not even funny that someone made this. It's just pathetic. Does anybody have any garbage trivia about this? I not? have garbage trivia. I have one piece of garbage trivia, so I'll just get that out of the way. 
Somehow this show ended up in the famous uh, video game series Super Robot Wars, which is just a crossover <laughs> of every other robot show, and they ended up in there somehow. Good job. <laughs> What's the manga popular? I have no idea. The show was a massive failure, but I don't know about <laughs> the manga. It was popular enough to receive a sequel, at least. Man, I'm going to pull shade on somebody that nobody remembers. The fucking YouTuber who based his whole his whole persona about being a huge elitist put this on his top 60 shows. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck that guy. He was an asshole. I'm not even going to name him. You know what? I would actually like to retroactively change my ranking to (laughs) 0.5 also. Because I was thinking, you know, no, you know what's on one show? Miro Tights. And this is worse than Miro Tights. Yes, no, fuck it. It is a 0.5. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason I bring up Miro Tights is unfortunately, both Yoko Hikasa and Aya Suzaku were in Miro Tights. <laughs> Hooray! This show officially has a 1 out of 10. Like, I'm just thinking about all the shows that I've panned in recent years. Mm. Kamigawa Jet Girls, Keijo. Bakuon. Bakuon. You like Bakuon. Well, I like Bakuon, but Bakuon is also terrible. Yes. And, like, these are things that I would joke about as, like, look how ridiculous these things are. But at least with Kandagawa Jet Girls... There could have been a racing show in there. Also, people said that the lesbian stuff in it was weirdly okay, but I don't know about that. Like, I, th- I can only imagine that the longer I think about this show, the worse I'm going to think of it. Oh, also, also, since we didn't mention it, uh, the name of Die Maidler, well, is Kenzen Robot, uh, Kenzen Roboto Die Midera, the ke- which is the sound robot. Which is supposed to be like as in healthy, but the sequel manga was Kenzen Robot Daimidera OGS, and the OGS is for orgasm. <sighs> Yay. All right, so to end this uh, episode, I have another question that I'd like to pose to the both of you. I've thought about this quite a bit. Namely, we've talked about how terrible this show is, and Ian, you said within Kandakawa Jet Girls, there might have been a racing show that was buried underneath all the the other stuff. Yeah, I I wasn't willing to continue watching it to find out. (laughs) Yeah, so how would we fix this show while keeping most of its core elements intact, such as the erotic power power in the mech? Uh, Are we keeping all the same characters? Uh, No, no. No, we're throwing all of those out. You could, you could change them. It's like more just like keep the same premise, I guess. Um, the first thing I would have suggested was something I already suggested, uh, which is the one improvement that's relatively minor, so not very good, is to make the heroes be not relishing in their perversity. And like there has to be a distinct divide between the the public persona of the heroes, which is as being very upright, and the perverted personas, which are in secret, and which are, like, secretly powering the mechs. I think that would be a minor improvement. I have other suggestions, but I think that's a one minor thing that would at least be better than what we had. Uh, okay, so how about you, Jenny, then? Because uh, I know we talked about this before the start of the episode. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually going to reach out a bit further, because I've, I've, I've thought this through a little bit more. 
We start off by, by changing the villain, namely from an organization whose goal it is to turn people on to an organization whose goal it is to turn people off as much as they can. You can make that a commentary about the falling birth rates if you like, but the goal of our villains now is to completely repress birth rates, thus exterminating humans oh uh, and take over the planet by themselves. This may be the only show that could be improved by making it more like Shimonetta. <laughs> we Why did you have to make it about birth rates? The birth rates aren't really that important a thing, but it's just something Japan was really... And then you make our protagonists, you have two protagonists, you have the male and female protagonists, they're a high school couple, and you can adopt what Ian said. In public, they act all prudish and stuff, but they've got their own hormonal teenage emotions that they're both repressing and very uncomfortable with. Um, they get recruited into sort of a resistance movement that uses these mechs to fight against the uh, evil organization. One thing we would change is the mechs aren't simply powered by arousal anymore. They're powered only by a combination of both male and female arousal. We cut, we kind of take like from China since this we didn't mention it, but this show took like chakras as a concept. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really mention it, but they did seem to like really like the idea of chakras, and that came out really poorly because uh, like the idea of, of like the six chakra or seven chakra system, as far as I understand it, is it's supposed to be about like spiritual advancements as you go through the chakras whereas in this it ended up making it look oddly phallic and it was just like that it was just like it was just like a bit culturally insensitive yeah so here we take from china we take like a yin yang uh element thing where it's own the mech really only works if both people are inside are feeling sexual pleasure and arousal and then the show kind of has is all about teaching these two high school students that it's okay uh, to be in touch with their emotion. Each time they're in the mech, that's how they get their mech power-ups that we, we still keep like the mech show and the, the tropes are intact. Also, they they both do other things in the mech. It's not just one of them sitting there and the other one piloting. Also, it's not male and female only. You would have other pilots or other mechs piloted by MM couples, FF couples, maybe even one that's piloted by like Five people who are all in a relationship together. Yeah, when me and Denny were coming up with this uh, half half Pacific Rim, half the one episode from Evangelion where Asuka and Shinji are <laughs> yes, like I did point that out uh, that like it doesn't need to be specifically male female, it just needs to be two or more, and then you introduce yeah. Voltroning, <laughs> <laughs> just have a giant orgy. Also, you get also you get Ikahara to direct it. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I also consider important for this show is that the first time they have, they eventually end up having actual sex, but that shouldn't take place inside the mech as a consequence of, oh, we need more power urgently, thus we need to go further than ever before. Yeah, they just do it recreationally. Yeah, they do it outside on their own time as, a, as an emotional connection moment, and then they can use that power later to fight better in the mech. Yeah, uh, I just feel it's important for it not to be a thing that gets forced on them by the necessity of the situation. Also, you <laughs> you have a less voyeuristic camera. Mm -hmm. Or you have an equally voyeuristic camera. Yes. So it's not that we 
that you can't do this show right. It's just that it'd be very difficult to do it right. I mean, I feel like we've strayed for, uh, quite far off what the original theme and intention of the original show is, but that's fine. That doesn't matter. Mm. We've made a much better show in the way, but still. Yes. So, yeah, when, if any of you are in the mood for people to write um, Orgy Rangers or whatever we call it, <laughs> uh, uh, you can find us on Twitter. At Super Sexy Rangers. Well, now it just sounds like porn, <laughs> which is fine. Okay, so uh, Freya, what are we going to watch next week? It can't be worse than this. <laughs> That don't say that. Next week we will be watching Hugto Precure. Huh. Oh great, we can finally watch Precure. <laughs> so if you want to commission some people to write Horny on Main, consent rangers, then we are the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast coming out every Thursday, more or less. If you'd like us to write said show or tell us what you thought about this or any other episode. Then you can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com. Bye-bye. We're so, so very sorry. We're really not. <laughs> <laughs>